Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, we search the world to bring you the world's greatest, brightest, most amazing humans. I like to say that the people that I'm looking to bring on the podcast are the ones that begin where everyone else ends. And this gentleman is absolutely hitting every one of those criteria. He's an amazing, amazing man. Uh, he's certainly one of the most brilliant humans I've ever had the luxury and privilege and opportunity to, to converse with, ultimately to uh, call a great friend. Uh, Dr. Trevor Cashy joins me today to dive into nutrition, behavior change, and ultimately a cognitive approach to nutritional intervention. And what that really ultimately means is you guys all know that me or any other exceptional nutritionist could write the best nutrition program program in the world for you. And only a really small percentage of people would adhere to it. And some people would adhere to it in, in a percentage or a large percentage or small percentage. And some people would stick on for a short period of time and other people would stick on forever. And the people who can follow the plan ultimately get results. So then is nutrition often the problem? When you ask everyone what's holding them back from changing their body, most people are going to say nutrition. And it's my belief that they're wrong. It's not inherently that it's not a nutrition that's a problem. It's inherently that it's not the nutrition that's slowing them down because they know what to do. They simply don't do it. And so if you look deeper, there's a lot more at play when someone doesn't succeed in, in a body transformation, ultimately, however you want to define that, right? If it's building muscle, losing fat, getting in shape, living long, performing well, however you want to define that, all of those require ultimately adherence to some, type, some semblance of structure, to some semblance of programming, nutritional programming, training programming. If you can't adhere to it, you don't succeed. And Dr. Trevor Cashy and I get into behavior change and how your words ultimately are shaping your behaviors. Dr. Kashi is, as I say, one of the most brilliant people on the planet, the creator of the Nutritional Cognitive Enhancement Protocol, a program for changing your brain to change your body through personalized nutrition. He also uh, highly prioritizes uh, intervention efficacy. So ultimately, which intervention is most effective for you? Uh, even if you're happy and getting results, he, st he will still continue to analyze data so you can get better results and get happier. I think that's awesome. At 15, Dr. Cashy became a cancer researcher at the time. He wasn't yet a doctor, um, but he became a cancer researcher at the Translational Genomics Research Institute. After just a couple of years, which is at 17 years old, he finished his first degree in university in biochemistry. He was immediately accepted into a doctoral program for biochemistry, which means, meant he ultimately skipped his master's degree. During his doctoral degree, he maintained a three-way focus, which was in the lab, which he, where he studied energy production at a cellular level. He maintained contacts in the industry, so nutritional sciences and ultimately um, supplements and formulations in production. And he was also involved in clinical research, so medical nutrition therapy and with special populations. He has some amazing stories. Uh, the first time him and I met, I actually said, you know what, man, you and I are probably going to be friends for life. There's just a certain mindset, a certain mentality that uh, I resonate with. And this is definitely one of them. Some of the key things we discussed in today's podcast, um, how to improve your nutrition and ultimately everything else um, is ultimately about changing your behavior, how to change the way you act by changing the way you think and by changing the way you speak. Managing your emotional states and your stress through your language, how language actually causes emotional stress. Interesting. Some keys to effective behavior change and so much more. You guys are going to love this conversation. It's deep. 
So I would say uh, pay attention, adhere to it, and uh, definitely, definitely, definitely listen all the way to the end. Today's podcast is brought to you by our brand new sponsors, a company that I absolutely love. I've actually found myself shopping in some really high-end shops and looking through their pro- their their garments and actually purchasing a couple of them on my own well before they were ever sponsored the podcast. So when Vori reached out to uh, talk to us about being a sponsor of the podcast, I think they actually saw me wearing one of their shirts. They said, oh, you know, he wears our stuff. We'd like to, to have a conversation and see if it'd be a great fit. Turns out it's a great fit. I really love the product. They fit really well. It's super high quality stuff. I've had some of the garments for over four years. I actually first got them when I was out in Lake Tahoe at a mind pump event and uh, receive some of their clothing. And I wear it still to this day. Their shorts, I wear to the gym, their shirts, I wear to train, I wear them to yoga. Just really high, high quality stuff. Performance athleisure is how I would categorize them. So that company again is Vuori, and that's V-U-O-R-I.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off for a limited time. Thank you very much to Vuori for joining us uh, as effective uh, sponsors of the podcast effective immediately. You guys can head over to vuori.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off. Enjoy the podcast. Cash. So uh, I've worked with my team a lot. We actually just had a, a very long, like murderous workshop for any normal human of, of going over what I have. I've actually almost finished developing like an entire dialect of English. Um, that for right now, I have shortened to PPA, which stands for positive present tense action orientation, that when you have a leadership or an authoritative position and you give directions a lot to speak language in this way so that you shrink the amount of guessing another person has to do, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, walk me through it. Would you mind? Do you mind sharing it? Um, I, can, I can try. Uh, it's, a long, it's a long presentation. Well, it, well... I'll tell you what we did instead of me like giving a lecture on what it means. I actually took transcripts of all of my team's coaching calls and we got together and we rented a, a large Airbnb out in the boonies and we stayed for like three days and we just went through every line of every transcript translating it. And so is it the act of coaching itself or is it the sales process or what exactly are you reviewing? Um, Literally just going over the language in the context of what, what some researchers or philosophers would call semantic priming of behavior. In other words, what you say affects what other people do. Sure. I mean, I, I, have, I, I feel willing to say that out loud at the very least. Uh, we have limited information as to how and lots of observational data um, on, a, on a cultural level, how those things affect other people, like if you show a group of a group of young people uh, a picture of an older person with a cane, and then tell them to leave and record all of their walking speeds, they all walk slower than when they came in. Just interesting things like that. That like tons of fun observational data like that exists, and um, I I try to correlate this to ways people um, disturb their own emotions and stress themselves out because something that I have. Something that I have noticed, or rather make note of, or, or just assume, that people's language patterns change as they get stressed out, and or like lots of you know cognitive therapists have turned into like they start distorting reality basically, and I lump them into four four major distortions, which I call uh, demandingness, 
uh, should, must, have to, need. Like, sh- like, do you actually need this? Right. You have to do it. Uh, and those sorts of things create a, a sort of implicit threat, meaning that it adds an or else. Like you should eat these, you should eat this amount of vegetables every day or else. And so the should, need, must, have to, those things have that implicit or else, which then ends up increasing the chances of these other derivative distortions to happen when you violate that demand. Then you have the, uh, you start dramatizing, like, I'll never get the right amount of vegetables. You always eat like an asshole. Uh, you go into uh, a downing, like, I, I am an unhealthy person. You are, you eat dirty. And so you end up like having what some people call global attribution. So we have demandingness, uh, dramatizing, downing, which, you know, global labeling. And then it goes to despair. Like, what's the point? I can't stand it anymore. And so people end up going through these more or less layers of cognitive distortions that have lumped into these four things. Some, they tend to happen in that order. So I put them in that order, but they can happen in any order. And uh, a lot of it has these underlying demands people put on themselves. And in the context of the sort of culture that we have, because I also consider it culturally relevant, you know, Dr. Albert Ellis, you know, almost a hundred years ago now called it masturbating. And so you, or, or some people might say shooting all over yourself. Like I must do this or I should have to, et cetera. And, and when you set those sorts of rules for yourself, or other people set those rules for you and you appropriate them, and then the results deviate from those demands, it cranks your nervous system up. Wow. So, man, what's the path away? So, like, do I know that I do that? I'm sure everyone listening does that. So, what is the what is your suggested course of action for your coaches? Well, in this context, we actually just audit. We, as of right now, the amount I have developed this, I have a lead by example approach. Because I have spent like the last three plus years translating the way I speak to speak like this in a more consistent way. So people slash you might like you especially may notice that I speak in a strange way. <laughs> and I speak in a strange way because over the years I have made, uh, I guess, real honest attempts at, I'll call it correcting or changing the language that I use. And a lot of it, frankly, has to do with omitting things that people rely on to communicate basic information. So I have, for instance, eliminated all forms of to be, is, am, were, are, been, because on a philosophical level, it creates inequality. If you say I am mad, that means, or if Ben says I am mad, that means Ben equals mad. Does Ben really equal mad? No, that makes zero sense on almost any level. You can say, I have some anger. Like you can say that you have anger or that you have behaved in some way other people would describe as angry. But does that make you an angry person? Because saying I am angry creates the equality of I am an angry person. Right. And if you get worked up or more likely work yourself up because of the sorts of language and rules that you have, and you say these sorts of things, in, in a situation where you have what you might say a toned down nervous system, we can, we can do the translation, right? We know that we joke when we say, well, my wife never cooks well, or whatever you say, you can dramatize that way, or you're always joking. However, when you get aroused, 
and that sort of language comes out, those sorts of patterns get taken more and more literally. And so you get, you, you go through respondent conditioning, like the, the classic, like dinner bell, dog salivation sort of behavior science. Yeah. And so when those words start to pop up, then you can actually start upsetting yourself, which people might call trigger words, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I try, I try to do my best to integrate this into, into pop psychology, but they, these sorts of language patterns do have uh, a, like respondent conditioning lability. Like you can correlate this noise to this nervous system status. Just like, for instance, just like when a police officer turns on their sirens, it creates an aversive stimulus that affects your central nervous system. Yep. Right? I was reading a book yesterday that was literally talking about so stoic approach to language. It's like never putting these types of of um, kind of possessive words on your expressions, right? Yes. And uh, so for PPA, I would say, what do you do instead? Right. And so by telling somebody, stop demanding everything, well, then that the pink elephant problem shows up again, right? So before we say what to do instead, could you review what those words are? So you said it's like, is, always. Oh, geez. Um, so I, I'll go through the distortions first. Yep. Uh, I... I straight up took the distortion of demanding this from Albert Ellis, who, who more or less pioneered uh, rational emotive behavioral philosophies. So I, I have a grounding there. And that essentially, from a language pattern standpoint, amounts to need, must, have to, ought, should, these sorts of words we use in like, how many vegetables should I eat? Well, should you eat any? I can think of plenty of ways where you can get away with eating zero. So should, must, have to, need, these words have an impl implication for an or else. So essentially, if you, can, if you can make a statement or make a suggestion and an or else kind of rolls off the tongue after you make it, well, then you have essentially created a demand for yourself or another person. And I take the position that demandingness sort of sets the stage for emotional disturbance. Yep. Like I must win or else, mm -hmm. or else what? I'll always fail. Uh, then I'm a loser. Why bother? <laughs> Man, I see so much value in this. Like I'm seeing this in my, like in parenting. I, right? I, I have, um, I have emotions welling up when I discuss it because I consider it probably the, excuse me. Yikes. Probably one of the single largest sources of human misery. Yep is really just this literally respondent conditioning to these face noises. And so just like, just like the cop car siren will stress you out, well, if you actually, in the last year plus, where I've started assessing language as noises rather than as like some mystical force that we use to communicate information, whatever the hell that means, I've started assessing language as noise and a lot of behavior started making way more sense. Wow. Way more sense. Way more sense. And I yeah, did yeah, that in triple kit on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, totally. And so for that reason, I've made this joke with you before. I can hold up a head of broccoli and punch Mr. Pakulski in the face over and over. And you know what happens? You start hating broccoli. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and the same sort of stuff happens with language. And if it happens, if we happen to use language that we use on a daily basis, 
Well, then we start creating interesting sort of stimuli around that sort of language that, that then generalizes, which means that maybe it would only affect me when I got angry. And then over a period of time, when I got sad, when I got anxious, and then I start getting anxious about getting angry, and then I start getting anxious about getting anxious. And now I start getting in my own head and talking in circles, which you must not do. Of course, I should really get out of my head or else what? Or else I'll get stuck in my head. And like, now I've driven myself crazy. Why even bother? This is so, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because it's so true and it's so brilliant. I was like, God, this, this is like the human curse, right? It's the... Yeah, yes, I think la- not paying attention to language is definitely, I, I mean, what percentage of people do you know that are that precise with their language? What percentage? Yeah, like how many people have you met in your life? Oh, um, I think I have, with, with, the, with the crowds that I roll with, probably more than the normal, okay? Yeah. Uh, by a percentage, just a, approximately zero, man. Right, yeah. Because, you know, I hang out with, hang out, I have... What am I, I've got like my, th- my three good, good, good friends. Okay. Aside from you. I'll throw them uh, in the meathead category, man. Are you going to say meatheads? Don't well, <laughs> well, like good friend number, good friend number one, billion dollar copywriting salesman. Okay. Good friend number two, MD PhD surgeon. Good friend number three, professor of journalism. Like all these people, they speak on purpose and they do things on purpose. So, and we interact with each other a lot. And, and so we end up making ourselves better in that regard. And I, I take the more wizard-like Socratic approach of, of intellectual irritant more than actually adding anything of value to their uh, quite practical skill sets uh, <laughs> that um, I have met you, if any people, frankly, that put that much energy into language. I do know plenty of people that can appreciate that language has that much influence. And it it kind of ends there because what, what opportunity does anybody have to train the skills or even learn about those sorts of connections to start making improvements? And like, how do I even study it? And so a lot of people end up getting kind of worked up there. And for that reason, I have put so much energy into like essentially creating this dialect of English and training my staff on it. And then when it gets to a point where it gets functional with them, then I can start working on a process that makes it viable for anybody else. And these things just take forever. I, I yeah. think. Yeah. I yeah. Think. So it's interesting because a man with your, um, depth could choose to pursue this for a lifetime and make a life's work of it and truly change the scope of of hopefully human communication or you're like hey this was great but i'm kind of done there i'm gonna go over here and it may never get revisited again right and that's like that's an interesting contemplation to go how many other things in the world exist like this we're like oh there's this person over here who probably could solve this problem <laughs> but maybe yes this is more interesting Yes, and you bring up a, a valid point where existential crises abound, <laughs> and uh, because of my history as as a scientist, etc., um, I ended up, thankfully, I guess, coming against those sorts of boundaries 
early on because I had, I had went to school for a long time, had a very particular set of skills, as Liam Neeson would say, and approximately nowhere to use them unless I took a button-pushing job somewhere, essentially. And so that really limited my options for expanding, uh, I guess, what you might call my intellectual horizons. Uh, so even though I have expertise in biochemistry and, and you know, could use an electron paramagnetic, paramagnetic resonance apparatus, only a few of them exist on Earth. And, and so like these sorts of things really actually would have ended up constricting me in quite a lot of ways, which left me with, well, what the hell do I do now? And that sort of led into the working with athletes, bodybuilders, nutrition, uh, supplementation, pharmacy, all that, that, that could include a lot of that sort of biochemical expertise. And then along the line, you start to see on a practical level how much psychology slash behavior plays a role uh, aside from just the button pushing and the number calculating uh, on the chances of, let's say, getting a gold medal or winning a show because you can account for all the stuff over here and still have it all go to pot. And as the, the, more, I, the more I learned about biochemistry, et cetera, the more I also learned to appreciate the, the gross or the macro behavior aspect of things, the role of the environment, the role of conditioning stimuli, even basic things like operant conditioning, stuff like that, that affected people's behavior. Because the, you have crowds that say, well, just eat less and move more. And I consider them you know, 99% right and 100% wrong. And then you have the other crowd that says, well, calories don't matter. And I consider them 1% right and 99% wrong. <laughs> and it, because it has less to do it has less to do with eating less and moving more and more to do with convincing people to eat less and move more. Mm -hmm. for, just for instance, to use like frank, rather, you know, curt language, that the modifying of the behavior, we run up to the, to, to the behavior modification component as the limiter to success. Rather than what to do, it then turns into, well, how do I get to that thing? Right. And... And so as the years went by, I went more and more towards the, the rather macro style behavior science studying stuff. Um, and that actually made, you know, the biochemistry, the pharmacy, the supplementation, that sort of stuff take, take a, a much different role in how I might interact with somebody re regarding maybe something like, well, I want to get a gold medal or I want to win a show or I want to manage my diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but hopefully that, that sort of makes sense. Amazing. It makes, it makes amazing sense. So now tactics, Trev, what am I doing to improve the way I show up in the world from a, from a face making? Okay. Understood. So I, I, uh, one second, I'll show you, I'll show you my secret weapon. All right. Oh, nice. You have seen these before coming over yeah, and training yeah, yeah, with me. Yeah. Yes. And I've brought this up to many people before. Like, you expect to train me like a dog or train myself like a dog? And I say, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. The clicker 
probably one of the single most amazing apparatus on earth in a laboratory setting and in a practical setting, because I started with it in a laboratory setting doing like cancer cell culture stuff. And uh, since then, I've had clickers. It's the counting apparatus around me at any given time. I use an abacus for some stuff. It just counting things improves quality of life when you have the skill to apply those calculations to something useful. So, for instance, Mr. Pokolsky, you could keep a clicker on you or like a three by five note card that you can mark off on. And then, or if you bust out a should, a must, a need, or a have to, you can mark it. And then you can actually create what a scientist would call a rate or the occurrence of something over time. And so you might, for an hour out of the day, two hours out of the day, start recording how many times you use words like that. And this apparatus ends up working like a negative reinforcer and a positive reinforcer at the same time, okay? Because every time you click, it feels kind of bad, just kind of. Like yep. shit, I, you know, like it's like this, the cuss word jar, right? Exactly. Shit, I said shit. You know, same sort of principle, right? So you can you can use this and mark it, all right. And then, or after the time period expires, you can then just put a mark on a piece of graph paper, an Excel sheet. I masturbated this many times per hour, and then as the time goes by, you can actually graph the decrease in the amount of times you use that language. And so this ends up changing the way you speak in an enormous way because where you, where you used to say should, must, have to, need, now you have to come up with a more articulate way to discuss what you want to discuss. And so it, it prompts a more fact-based conversation. So if you manage the demandingness, the dramatizing, which is just extreme language that goes polar, like always, never, uh, absolutely, Horrible, terrible, awful. Like, they had terrible service? What happened with that tidal wave that knocked out a whole island, man? Like, get over yourself. So when you, when you start to, you can keep track of these sorts of distortions, you know, one at a time, all the time. Just, you know, I would probably have a discussion with you offline if you wanted to take something like this seriously. Yeah. But basically, these sorts of words that we use, asshole, you know, like insults, you know, <laughs> the, by keeping track of how often we use them and then having an operational understanding of how they, you might say, dial in or tune up your nervous system, that you can start making, you can start talking on purpose. Mm. Because these distortions, by definition, they end up distracting from the facts. Like, was he, was he really a mad asshole or did he furrow his eyebrow and hit the table? And so speaking in terms of the facts versus labeling, judging, you might say separates you from that sort of environment and allows you to assess the situation in a way to make a more rational decision. So just by virtue of keeping track of and auditing your language, you end up also changing the way you think, which has an effect on the way that you act. And so this ends up turning into a, a rather, rather encompassing sort of behavior management theory, whatever you would, would call it, sort of process that has a relatively simple and straightforward premise. Uh, people tend to understand, like, if I change the way I think, I change the way I act. But how do you, like, I can't think this anymore. Well, then what do you do? How do you change your thoughts? Well, that then op opens up the Socratic jar of what does thinking mean? <laughs> 
which can turn into a rather intimidating conversation. Go until so, yeah, go yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was just say go there. Like, uh, this is oh, go there, go there. So yeah. So what the hell does thinking mean? Yeah. Well, before you say that, I'm. This is the perfect timing for me in my life. I, I almost think this is more challenging than like a diet from like, hey, abstain from the cookies. Like this, this has to be more more challenging to someone who aspires to, well, you know, to self betterment. We'll say. And uh, man, I've been really cognizant lately of people who do use intentional language, objective versus subjective languaging is something that I pay attention to when I listen to podcasts and listen to audiobooks. I'm like really kind of queuing in on it. So literally the timing is perfect because I definitely know that I do that. I, I know that I do that. Yeah. And, and until you learn another way, you will only get mad at yourself for doing it. And I've gotten worked. I get worked up talking about it because I... I know how you operate. You operate like a champion. You put demands on yourself. And I know I spend a lot of time talking with champions. Most of them want to eat a bullet, yep. which means they spend their entire lives operating at a high level for the sake of entertaining other people. And I get sick because of it. <laughs> yep. So that out of the way, you have not like now that you already know that language affects your behavior, your thinking, your emoting, et cetera, et cetera. And then, it, then you ask the question or tell yourself, well, I can't speak like this anymore. I can't think those thoughts anymore because we have just a, a glaring discrepancy of what to do instead. And so if, if, if a lot of you, a lot of people will say that they have a goal of something that they do not want, same sort of situation. It just opens up the door for literally anything else. And just a technique like this, which I consider a skill, counting things, a legitimate life skill, by the way, you end up changing the way that you speak on accident rather than trying to go through some Rosetta, Dr. Cashy Rosetta Stone program of how to speak this dialect. And so you just keep track of things that you know affect the way you behave, the frequency of those things specifically things that you say, because can you, do you have ultimate, you know, power over your environment? Hell no, you do have more than, than you might guess, but you do have less power over your environment than you do over what you say. And this, this thing goes into our definition of thinking, which entire libraries probably filled with texts to discuss what the hell thinking means. And my foray into rather primitive or basic behavior science has, has really simplified the living hell out of all this, where now I have mostly just defined thinking as talking to myself. And I, I basically break up thinking into two different categories of sub-vocalizing, where, where you might say subjective and objective, I've actually swapped to private and public. So I have private conversations with myself, and I can also visualize things. So thinking from a practical standpoint, I split into those two categories. And that means if you want to change your thoughts, which a lot of people talk about and have and, and definitely make statements that if you change your thoughts, you change these other things and do a bad job at really defining thinking, well, that leaves anyone who believes in that sort of correlational statement at a loss as to what to do to change their thoughts. When I posit, if I define thinking as sub-vocalizing private conversations with myself and visualizing, that now I can start an audit process. In other words, 
we think in the ways that we speak. So if we audit the way we speak, then the way we think changes as a side effect. So do I change my thoughts? Yes. Do I change my thoughts directly? No. No. By having this sort of publicly available observation technique, life skill building sort of process, by auditing your actions, you end up changing the way you behave on accident by keeping track of what you do on purpose. Does that follow? Of course. Are you auditing what you're saying sub subvocally or whatever the term was, like subaudibly? So you're auditing the words in your head as well. So if I if I'm coming along and I'm saying I always, are you are you including that in your clicker, or is it just what what you verbalize? Um, so I wait for it to come out first. So like you you want to use what I call successive approximation, what some people would call baby steps, uh, and the. I have a lot of awkward pauses because I translate things in my head even now. Yep. So that goes back to things like mindfulness or your, uh, would you call it um, dilating your nervous system? What'd you call it? Yeah. So dil- well, I specifically said dilating your gaze. Dilate. Okay. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I, I, I forgot your term. So it, it seems to fall into that sort of category where how do you just enjoy the flavor? How do you just speak, et cetera, et cetera? It has less to do with not thinking these thoughts and more with the understanding that you will think these thoughts no matter what. And observing them rather than taking them as rules to follow. Every person has thought about killing themselves. Every single one. Some more, some less. Now, depending on the context, that sort of visualizing and subvocalizing has effects on people's behavior. I'll just say that, okay? And <clears throat> some people take it more seriously than others. Same sort, of, same sort of principle as to observing and describing something that happened versus taking it as, as fact and rules to follow. So I can observe the fact that I call it factual because I had a private conversation with myself. I might say, sub-vocalize something really nasty in my head. Where the hell did that come from? Well, who cares? I can audit it before it comes out. And that sort of filtration process underlies changing the way that you speak and then circles back to changes the way you, changing the way you end up thinking. So do you ever stop thinking, you know, as an alcoholic or person with suicidal ideation or a perfectionist, do you ever actually stop thinking, I fucking hate myself. I want to die. I want to slit this guy's throat. I want to run. Like, do you ever, we all think those weird thoughts, you know, do you ever stop thinking them? No, you do. However, decrease their frequency and their intensity. And at some point you decrease their frequency and intensity so much that they now have modest, if any, practical significance. And so when a lot of people set the demands on themselves that I can't think this stuff, I can't say this stuff anymore, I would rather say, absolutely think it, because you'll think it either way. We can set up the environment to change the intensity and the frequency, which then has the impact on quality of life. Does that follow? 100%. Like, feel bad. Some things suck, Ben. Yeah. Some things suck. Like... (laughs) And you want things to suck because that motivates you to change it. 
Now, if you demand that they can't suck or else I'll hate myself and things will never work, why bother? Well, now you've taken something that has an appropriate level of suck and you've distorted yourself into an emotional disturbance that can act as something self-sabotaging. You can end up doing something stupid when you start distorting the facts to that level. Oh, do you Let think it, that, do you think there's value in, you know, we talk about, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like, um, influencing your subconscious or unconscious. Do you think there's value in, you know, morning and maybe evening, um, recital of, you know, what we'll call an incantation or some type of repetitive phrasing, uh, to assist in changing your language patterns In changing your language patterns. No. Do I see it having value? Absolutely. Uh, this gets into a separate conversation, like maybe actually another conversation, another time where I, I make, I delineate between utility and validity and these sorts of techniques I consider useful when integrated and done properly with low validity insofar as people, because they work, people then make up reasons why they work. And when it does work, it reinforces that explanation. Right. It makes it look like their explanation for it working gets truer and truer. But really, the, the explanation that they give for it working has nothing to do with the actual mechanism. So that said, I do think those sorts of maybe you might call them mindfulness techniques have value in a lot of situations. And it sounds like you discuss a couple of separate things at once. One sounds a lot like making or creating superstitious behaviors on purpose, which I do believe in, in the context of respondent conditioning, like a bedtime ritual, <laughs> for instance, where you have this set of noises and body movements and phrases that when correlated with these stimuli, they end up sort of interacting with each other to, to more or less force your body into this sort of physiological state, which we have plenty of, I'll just call it proof for. Um, oh, in that context, I think so. The sort of meditation, though, from a, from a mechanistic standpoint or mindfulness, I, I have reduced it which some people get irritated with, to which I tell them complicate it. And, and in that case, they tend to go off the rails and say silly things. Basically, I lump it into um, performing a benign behavior to neutralize a polar behavior, period. For instance, if you get all worked up, somebody might tell you to count to 10. You do something benign, to distract from, adapt to, attenuate something polar. And when you do this enough times, you can presumably change your emotional status faster and faster and maybe even prevent it from happening in situations. So in that context, I think it has an indirect effect on language. For instance, if when you get worked up, you might say things you don't mean. Mm -hmm. So if you regulate your emotions, you self-regulate with some other techniques like using mindfulness or meditation skills, it will then decrease the frequency and magnitude of maybe polarizing language that you would say out loud rather than sub-vocalize. So in that regard, I think it would have a positive effect on your language. It just has a more indirect one than actually keeping track of what the hell comes out of your face. Right. And, and so the way my 
mind would kind of explain that to myself is this kind of default state of the nervous system is obviously, or you tell me if I'm wrong, is likely to influence the tendency to allow things to come out, right? And, and if, I'm, if I'm tightly wound, say, for example, the, the influence of external inputs, external facial noises or anything is significant. It seems like it takes less of a small amount of signal or a large amount of signal to kind of set me over the edge. Whereas if I, if I kind of tune it down a little bit and the nervous system may as maybe um, not as highly aroused is less likely to you know, tip, tip over the, the, the um, you know, metaphorical edge here, so to speak. And so that would, in my mind, be a value uh, to, to doing things like that, where it's, you know, basically, you know, to, to kind of simplify is like depriving sensory experience. Yes. Yeah. So I will, I will buy that explanation and I will raise you the follow-up question. Uh, I have tended less and less to focus on the, I guess what you call the, the status of the CNS or the status of the nervous system, whatever you'd like to call it. And then ask the follow-up question of, well, what put your nervous system in that state to begin with? And that ends up taking you to some antecedent environmental variable or some subvocalized language pattern. If you tell your, if you say you hate yourself over and over and over, you'll work yourself up. So then does that mean that I work on tuning my nervous system down or do I moderate the language pattern? Right. Do I? And so I, I care more like what the hell got you all worked up to begin with, Mr. Pakulski? And let's look at that shit. Mm-hmm. And I say that like with fervor, you know, right. because you, I see that as setting yourself up to win because you can figure out how to calm yourself down all you want. If you have an environment that contributes to it 24 hours a day, well, then it, it ends up creating, it ends up distracting from the issue and maybe developing, maybe you could develop another set of skills to moderate it better. Right. Does that follow? Of course. Take your hand off the burning stove. Don't try to med- just meditate your way through it. Get it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, but, but potentially there's a lot of things that are causing your nervous system to be highly aroused, right? Like driving your car 70 miles an hour on a freeway with a bunch of people who may or may not be qualified to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I got to do that sometimes. I can't always remove the the stressful stimulus. So 100%. Learning to, like, how do I how do I mitigate this as much as possible? Seems like a, a good strategy. And for me, it's, like the, it's the exploration of... Uh, you know, like I said, the acuity of the of the experience, right? Rather than taking this, um, yeah, it's like it's dialing out, um, so I can experience more aspects of this moment. And when I do that, the it seems, and I'd love to hear your opinion, opinion of this. It seems that, um, so if I'm experiencing all the sensory um, information in this moment. It'll, yeah, it allows me to put maybe less weight on the the one thing that may have otherwise been overwhelming to me. So I don't know, like if I'm if I'm sitting here listening to the cars go by or the birds chirp, and I'm listening to all the birds chirp, that one that's kind of really close to my ear becomes less of an irritant. Yes, fair enough. I love to hear your opinion. I mean, I say this because I'm like, tell tell me how you think about that. Well, I'll I'll ask an irritating question and say opinion of what. So you gave me an example, or rather, I remembered an example from what you said. But what what do you want commentary on? Yeah, how do well? How do you feel about um, the the thought of 
changing potentially the sensory experience? Is that something that can influence outcomes or do you like, no, that really doesn't have an influence on your perception of the, of the current set of information? Okay. Okay. I see it as a ground zero to start generalizing. Basically, unless you can apply this in a stressful environment, it, it will have limited practical value. And so if you want to start with, okay, turn off all the lights uh, and make it silent, you know, have a bowl of soup and, you know, have, a, have, a, have an orgasmic experience, great, okay? At that point, you want to start successively approximating. So hoping that this then translates or generalizes to other environments keeps it handicaps you. So if you do have a skill you want to learn in this case, so I'll, I'll stick to the literal aspect of this here, enjoying the food you eat and varying environments give you varying food enjoyment experiences. Well, then learning to enjoy your food in, in the environment that has the fewest distractions first, then sets you up to start regulating how much distraction you start adding on purpose. Yep, makes sense. So I, I, I will respond with that. Ladies and gents, I'm just gonna interrupt really quickly for a quick message from our podcast sponsors today. Heroic, Heroic app is a company I've actually been working with since 2007. Gosh, was that 15 years now was the first time I actually started engaging with the company at that time. It was known as the Philosopher's Notes. Brian Johnson, if you remember, is a, is a previous guest of the show, probably one of our one of our most requested repeat guests of this podcast. Brian is just an absolute wealth of information and wisdom. His business, Heroic, has gone on to create a community to ultimately inspire and support you to live your greatest life. Now, obviously, there's an amazing synergy there between what Brian is doing with Heroic and what muscle intelligence is doing. We are really focused on supporting you to live your greatest life because of the body and how you move and how you feel and the energy. And Brian's supporting you mentally, how you educate yourself, how you can ultimately have the, the mental abundance and clarity and uh, the mindset to succeed. So a beautiful, beautiful synergy between these two brands. And if you guys take advantage of this opportunity right now, you can get 50% off the app forever because you become a founding member. So it's a one-time payment and it's only effective until April 15th. So you got to jump in there now. This 50% deal uh, allows you to lock in a rate of $3 per month. Super, super cheap. And honestly, it's something I'll use. If you're someone who reads, if you value growth, if you value wisdom, if you value looking into some of the most cutting edge thought processes, their coaching program is something I personally did. It's a 10 month coaching program, which actually walks you through so many different um, areas of focus and helps you upgrade your thinking and your effectiveness as a human. That's enough for me. Ladies and gents, if it sounds interesting, if you're someone who is committed to personal growth, someone who's committed to personal development and ultimately the acquisition of wisdom and growth of who you are as a person, this is some of the best money you're ever going to invest. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash heroic. That's muscleintelligence.com slash H-E-R-O-I-C and get hooked up with 50% off our community at Heroic. And now back to the podcast with Dr. Cashy. So here, here's what I want to get to, man. I think we all want to get, I think we all want to be more effective humans. We, I want to be the most effective human that I can be. And, and to me, that means first, as you'll say, removing some of the things that we do 
um, that may be preventing us from being an effective human. So in this instance, how do I become a more effective human tribe? I'm going to throw this really, ge really general question out, out at you. I'm like, hey, man, where do you go with that? As far as, as, far as my ability to show up um, mentally, I, I'm, trying to not, I'm trying to give you as general a direction this as possible. Yeah. I, I lean on what some people might call a theory of constraint. In other words, a vast majority of the time, like vast, vast majority of the time, very few, if any, people could use what you might call performance enhancement. Okay. People say, you say, I say, I want to get better. And that confuses the intervention. In other words, if you say, I want to get better at something, then you start to consider, make plans, and account for things that make you better at that thing, which makes a lot of sense. And I take the position that instead of trying to get better at stuff, you account for all the shit that makes you worse, or I might say taking your foot off the brake. So lots of, lots of people have situations where they want to get better at something. And if you ask, well, why do you want to get better at it in the correct way with an appropriate Socratic dialogue, it tends to amount to some negative thing in their life or their environment prompting them to get better, okay? And having enough conversations and reading and even doing research on this sort of topic, on a practical level, biggest bang for buck goes to assessing or identifying, assessing, and addressing the things that hold you back rather than attempting an intervention to try and make yourself better. I make very like discrete, hard lines between those two things. And to some audiences, I might call it a problem orientation versus a goal orientation. And I even have a podcast that I ranted about a long time ago where I, I hate goals. I say, I hate goals. Why? Because so many people have problems to solve. And you can, you can argue semantics, but like, yes, semantics. What has more like saying just semantics, I think kind of, I find it rather insulting because of the power language has. And, and so <laughs> if you say problem versus goal, it generates different behaviors for different people. Mm -hmm. Saying that they mean the same thing, you can argue on a philosophical level, on a behavioral level, very different things happen. And if you talk about things in the context of the problems that you have, you start removing constraints. And by virtue of removing constraints, your performance ends up increasing as a side effect. Dude, totally. Like everyone I work with, it's never a matter of trying to push the gas pedal further. It's like, yeah, take your foot off the brake. No, you, you, you end up revving the engine in park, man. Yeah. And you know what happens? Heart attacks, depression, suicide, disinhibition, drug, blah, blah, blah. Like revving the engine in park, you, you can call that anxiety or burnout or whatever. I get excited about this stuff for obvious reasons. So uh, uh, these revving the engine in park <laughs> keeps people from getting better. <laughs> if you just put it in drive, well, then things work just fine because people, people have the capacity. They, ha they have more or less the skills and you might call the drive to do all these other things that they want to do. And 
the problems that they have um, tangential to their goal, they end up stealing away energy and time, which then just makes this look even look even better or worse, depending on the sort of situation. Right. And so very like I can count the number of times on one hand where I I could justify talking and intervening, helping someone intervene in their lives in the context of a goal orientation rather than a problem orientation. So right. few people have their have their life together to the point where they actually can focus on getting better for the sake of getting better versus dealing with all of the constraints and then getting better as a side effect of that. Because you can, you can get to practical levels, you can get to practical levels of expertise just by dealing with constraints. And reaching what I would consider mastery does take a lifetime. And so that means assessing all of that stuff first to give yourself room. Trev, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now who are saying, I want to learn to think like this guy. I'm sure you spend time thinking about your thinking. What, what are your suggestions, best practices? What, what was the path to more effective, again, I, I know thinking is subjective, but more effective processing of information, more effective, you know, to, you, to use my word thinking. And I don't know if you'll, you'll question that term, but like, yeah. I find it appropriate. So I'll, I'll, I'll save you, myself and listeners, some of the, maybe the roadblocks where I find or consider thinking a, a fabulous term to use in general conversation and an abhorrent term to use as a technical jargon in research. Good for daily conversation, bad for science. <laughs> yep. Different conversation to justify that. So use whatever you want. I can read between the lines and or, or, and, or I will clarify, which I will most likely clarify. The, so to, you asked the question of how do I get started how do I start thinking on purpose? Yeah. Yeah. More effectively. I mean, on purpose is obviously the, the, the foundation of it, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, what is so the, this? This opens an interesting jar of worms with things like, like critical thinking, perhaps, uh, where critical thinking really comes as a, as a function of life experience, uh, which you can define various different ways. But basically, you can define critical thinking as maybe maybe the the probability of solving a given problem, I suppose. Or people might say connecting dots. But what do you connect dots with? You connect dots with other things that you've done and experienced. Mm -hmm. So critical thinking as as a skill, I I think kind of distracts because then someone asks, well, how do I critically think better? But that to me asks the wrong question because people define critical thinking as a result, like critical thinking happens as a result rather than a cause. Sure. <laughs> if somebody connects dots, well, then you say they've critically thought, which I think distracts from, from the sort of behaviors. In, right. in any case, the, I, I make the honest suggestion of trying to assess something you want to get better at and then make an honest assessment of your environment, your social interactions, and the way you talk to yourself and start making a list of what of these things might actually slow me down. And the more exhaustive of a list you can make, which you can make one of all, all the things in my personal life, my social life, at work, the way I talk to myself or think, etc. 
that might obstruct my progress, that alone will then give you the opportunity to, to say, okay, maybe I start working on this thing a little bit. And when you do that and you start getting better at this thing now on accident, you start accumulating life experience and wisdom, which then ends up translating to what people might call critical thinking, etc. Oh, I have advanced education in varying topics, and I made huge, huge, massive swaps in, in, um, I guess, arenas, right? Going from like molecules and magnetic resonance and lasers all the way over to macroorganismal behavior and, and, and language. And so I can take concepts and principles from over here and apply them here on accident, just because I've gained skills here that look like they have nothing to do with this. But since I only have skills from here, I try and force the square pegs into a round hole and sometimes it works. <laughs> what drove the depth of thought, Trev? Because not everyone has the desire to pursue depth of thought. So, you know, oftentimes there's a North Star, there's a goal, there's an objective. I think that's why goals are important because like without a goal, sometimes it's really to give, easy to give up and you get kind of halfway there. Like, yeah, it's kind of getting hard. I don't want to do it anymore. What drove you to pursue the depth that you have? I think I can tell you, Mr. Pikulski, and it happened with a conversation I had with my mother as a small child, less than 10. Oh, I grew up, my father actually makes a, a very hilarious uh, uh, impression of me, but growing up, I asked, what's that? I just, what's that? What's that? What's that? I asked it a lot. <laughs> and I don't know, eight, nine years old, sitting in the back seat, my mother, bless her, had a nasty day, probably had a nasty day. And uh, I said, Hey, mom, what's that? And she said, Fucking figure it out yourself. And I know that she probably regretted saying that. And that parents in general were like, Who she got worked up instead of things she didn't mean, right? Back to our. And she probably hated herself for it for a little while too, to draw from our previous conversation. And I actually, it shocked me for one, but two, I said, okay. And then I did. <laughs> and and that, I had a couple of key moments like that in my life. Cause saying that I like came up with it myself, like I, I think that it distracts from like really how much the environment ends up affecting the probability of these things where my mother in her exhausted emotional state said, figure it out yourself. And I just, okay. And that, and like I said, a few other things that stacked yeah. on top of each other, you know, lucky with mentors and things like that, uh, prompted that sort of behavior. Like if I want to figure out what this is, well, now you start end up back calculating kind of on your own. You, I just asked a lot of questions that annoyed a lot of people. And I ended up getting the people who got less annoyed by it, I asked more questions. And it turns out the people that got less annoyed by it had more STEM philosophically related backgrounds. Do you think the emotion of that situation impacted the, uh, the, the scope, the uh, impact of it? 100% I do. Talk to me about that. Uh, because us humans have some people might call them instincts, I guess. We have these innate or hereditary aversions. 
like loud squeaky noises, like very common, like borderline 100% of humans, you would startle them and scare them if you made a particular tone at, at, a, at a particular sound, right? And so in that sort of situation, other than like learning the F word meant bad and that sort of low grumbling voice, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it, it did create an aversion. It did create an aversion, meaning if I wanted to say, hey, mom, what's that? What do I remember? Okay. I remember my exhaust, my like just beautifully exhausted mother, single mom, by the way, but like the whole deal. Okay. I remember that. Do it, like figure it out yourself. And so every time I go, what's that? Then I started saying, what's that to myself? Instead of saying, what's that to everyone else? And so that sort of situation, because of the emotion involved, I think, to use some old school language, stamped in that sort of behavior pattern as, as a side effect. So to avoid the punishment of my mother getting worked up, I just ended up doing this other stuff instead. And then the people that did tolerate my shenanigans, they ended up tolerating it because they operated the same way. And so it turned out, it turned into a somewhat of like an attraction by exclusion. I just, of all the people that I annoyed, I just got left with these other people that accepted it. Right. So then here, here's a bit of circuitous thinking for you. In that breath then, is there not merit in the demanding thinking? So as a child, I think you and, you and Alex talked about this. As a parent, do, yes. like, how, do you, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate like... Oh boy, I got tingles. I got tingles thinking about this. Human. Yeah. Yes. So that turns into a different conversation about parenting, which I would love to have. Uh, definitely for a different time though. I will tell you that demandingness has tremendous utility. Hold, you think we would made it to the moon or built computers or what? I will tell you the difference though. People do amazing things, Ben, especially because of demands. They also make themselves miserable. Yep. How do you tow that line? How do we tow that line, right? Because we know demands are necessary to pursue maybe, uh, but they're also, as you say, most, most champions and geniuses are, you know, their, their blessing is often their biggest curse. Well, do I consider them necessary? No, I think. I think they have worked, and because they worked, we keep doing it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So, what's the path? So, uh, yeah, let's, let's save that for another time. Yeah, yeah, that turns into a different, maybe a private one first, and then we yeah. can expand on it after that. Yeah, yeah, because um, you know, I get all sweaty uh, thinking about that. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah. my heart's pounding. My heart's pounding. Yes, um, you know, like my children are everything to me, man, and, and not, and, and and you know, I call it like backing them into a corner with my lack of ability to articulate myself, my lack of ability to communicate with them effectively uh, brings me so much pain. I was like, yes. So in PPA, I would just condense that to ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, just for the sake of our conversation, do you see how many words it took to try and tell me what you wanted to say when you could have condensed it into one action oriented word right. that, that would have limited the amount of translating I would have had to do in communicating with you? with us because th there, there's a common dialogue but yes average person like man I, I talk about this all the time i say so little in public because i assume that my words are going to be twisted by someone because it means <laughs> I, just like, I just don't say anything in general right like <laughs> in general i'm just like i'm just like i was listening i'm taking it all in i'm probably contemplating on it at some level and minimally communicative because it's like 
you say one thing that means something to this person in that country and it's like you're gonna get yes so, yes yeah. oh so have you have you heard of the dunning kruger effect of course yeah, okay sure. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of people tend to describe it as like if you know a little bit about something then you start acting like a more so i a lot of people call it a bad thing essentially that it gets used in a pejorative way mm -hmm. and i actually consider it one of the single most important ingredients to learning hmm. you know why because it means you got interested in something and you want to start you start talking about it and when you start talking about it what happens when you get feedback and that yeah. feedback furthers your education if you're open to feedback for that, that different kind of worms. Because you're not okay. always open to feedback. In, in that. Well, the education only happens as a function of feedback. Right. Teaching only happens if a person learns. Yeah. And so in that regard, you can only learn if some, if some authoritative source provides feedback on the things that you say or do. Growth mindset, right? And, that, and that's what I hope to harness in my, in my children. That's it. Yes. And so I form opinions on things I know nothing about all the time so that I can get feedback from an expert. Right. And so I consider it one of the most valuable things for learning ever. And it, it like, like anything else, it depends on the people you do it with mm. and the sort of resources you have at your disposal. I consider it the most, one of the most important aspects of learning anyway. It just expedites the, <laughs> the learning process or, or rather the utility of what you learn, okay, uh, based on the, the people and resources that you have at your disposal when you do start talking about things you know nothing about. Yeah. I, I can think of very few other joyful, entertaining, silly, effective ways of learning things and saying, saying stuff you know nothing about to a person who knows something about it with the understanding that you will do those things before the conversation happens. Provided they're willing to, and then this, this is an interesting thing. As someone who, like yourself, has you, your heart, you're, you're a wise person, you're, 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 you, know, you don't like the term leader, but you're a teacher, we'll say. And teachers, in my, in my uh, approximation, have, have two kind of polarized opportunities, right? I can teach you, I, I can tell you're doing something less than optimally your understanding of something is incorrect by simply showing you how to do it, right? Like, I'm like, hey, think about it this way. And I could teach you that way. Or I can tell you you're an idiot until you're wrong. And there's yeah. so many people right now saying, you know, socially on social media being like, hey, man, you're an idiot. Don't do that. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I think, so just speaking to your point, as someone who wants to pursue, um, you know, explorative thinking in new areas, as you said, it's super important to have someone on the other side who's willing to take the time like you do to explain the stuff, man. So uh, thank you. And and I don't want to end our conversation there, but um, I just want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, taking the time to explain these things to, you know, I, I feel like a mental midget when we're having these conversations. I was like, oh, you just think so deeply. And the fact you're willing to do it, I'm, thank you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening and, and caring and your own, your own commentary. Cause I, you know, I make up a lot of stuff too. I try and corroborate it as much as I, I possibly can. And I have my own biases like anybody else. And it just, the, I think uh, Samuel Johnson, uh, just uh, like an old school intellectual from the 1700s, I think 1700s. Like a, a friendship should always be in a state of constant repair. <laughs> and it just, these sorts of 
discourse, I think, to our previous, you know, to, to the previous point, I, I consider maybe one of the a fundamental, a fundamental facet of a long-term and successful relationship, romantic or or platonic. And from a Socratic standpoint, if you take it as a Socratic dialogue, both people end up improving in some way. You, you end up accumulating wisdom in some way, even if you do it in a rational way, like, like where you end up coming to a truth by virtue of agreeing with each other, you know, on a series of points, like you still get value from that somehow. Right. And, and just, so thank you for participating with me because, you know, few people exist that have even have the patience for it. Like, what does it mean to think like, screw up, like what the hell, you know? And so who else can you talk to? Like, what does thinking mean, but actually have a conversation that amounts to something um, that amounts to something functional that you can, that you can apply to an intervention process. Like that takes, that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of layers. It takes a lot of skill sets. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's, there's few things that are more interesting, right? And, and everyone, it seems like um, all these, these intellects that I tend to read, uh, everyone seems to kind of converge on these common areas, right? Like they, they end up studying the same things. Cause like you kind of figure other things out and you're like, well, I'm not saying I'm there yet, but like you, you figure all these other things out. And everyone, you get comfortable with some things. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah, converge, yeah. Everyone seems to converge on the same uh, acquisition of wisdom, right? Everyone's like reading the philo uh, philosophical thing. Everyone's reading psychology. Uh, it's so it's so fascinating to me. And as I said prior to our call, that's really what I aspire to do in the next with the next ten years of my life is just dive deeper into you know a similar path to what you're pursuing. Obviously, I'm sure it's different, but. Um, yeah, man, I, I'm so fascinated with your with your pursuit of wisdom and your your willingness to give it back. And and yeah, that's why I asked about you know how important is a north star for you? How important is a goal? Because like it seems though, and you, you kind of correct me on this, but it seems as though without a direction, without a compass, where do you go? Is it just like pursuing interest, or is it uh, hey, I have to solve this problem for this person? So for me, like. I solve problems based on my own pain, my client's pain, my business pain. And it's constantly just like solving problems. I call myself a problem solver. Um, but what's what's the the North oh, Star? Oh man, good. Uh, so I had this conversation with a professor a few weeks back, and uh, you ask a great question, and 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 the question that I follow up with was, uh, you you basically ask, how do you find meaning in your life? Yeah. Okay. And I have the annoying question of, okay, what does meaning mean? Mm -hmm. and, and by virtue of, well, that different conversation, what does matter mean, right? They go, right. It goes super circular. Right. So it, it, it matters insofar as we both have a conversation about it. Yep. Uh, well, it, as presumably, if you say, how do I give my life meaning? You, you prop up meaning as something good. Right. Yep. And that means to get that good thing, you have stipulations where if I meet these criteria, then I have meaning. Mm -hmm. And so just by just real basic sort of how can you ever give yourself a chance to figure things out unless you define your damn terms? Okay. 
And so we had a pretty long conversation about what meaning meant, which I will, I will spare you uh, because I had a, a rather hilarious reductionist version of it, which I find quite useful, which we can talk about some other time. But, but really, it, people spend their lives avoiding shit. Yep. Okay. And because of the sort of, frankly, garbage positive psychology sort of movement, especially garbage positive pop psychology sort of movement, it changed to setting goals, making affirmations, doing a lot of sort of fluffy stuff that distracts from the things that cause you misery. And people tell the story that if you set this goal and reach your goal, the misery goes away. But really, the misery stays with you and drags you down, which then raises the next question of, well, what happens if you manage that misery? Does the goal matter? Okay. Okay. And now the conversation can start. So for, like I said, a vast majority of people, I see this sort of pseudo goal orientation as a way to try and distract from or attenuate misery. When if you address the misery, if you observe and describe the misery as a matter of fact, and you address those things, then this solves itself. Because you'll find out what you like. You'll find out who you love. You'll find out the things you like to do. And then you will start pursuing those things by virtue of the random interactions that you have. Because you have all of this time and energy that you used to spend miserable trying new things and doing new stuff and acquiring different skills that you applied from resolving your misery. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a depth to that exploration as well like well so what percentage of the things that bring you misery are you aware of right that that comes to mind right it's the iceberg because i think i could very obviously get rid of a few things in my life like hey, if i just didn't do that anymore like stop beating your head against the wall that'd be obvious but again we spoke about these childhood these childhood um scars right that that exist and uh yeah that just feels like a whole lifetime yeah of that, inspiration. yeah maybe Maybe I, I think I think saying that discourages people from doing something about it. For okay. one, and two, I think it sort of overestimates uh, the. It, it simultaneously over and us over and underestimates history on current, on the current situation, yeah. because on the one hand, our previous experiences affect who we how we operate now. Right. Okay, on the other hand. Do, do previous experiences do previous experiences from now maintain how we operate forever? No, no, no. And so for that very reason, I, I try and manage this sort of dialectical tension with what? I remember you said that to me last time we, we chatted was like so many people are spending time dwelling on these childhood. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it, it ends up turning into something you use as permission to sabotage yourself in the present. Right. And you do it on purpose, but do you notice it? Two different things. Two different things. You can do something on purpose and spend too little to and spend little time analyzing it. Yep. <laughs> in other words, on purpose versus with purpose. Oh, so I like to use the language of doing something on purpose and with purpose. So did something cause your problem? Absolutely. Like something in your past caused your problem, recent past, long past, whatever. Does that thing maintain the problem? 
No. Probably not. Right. Which gives you a fighting chance. Right. Yes, something effed up happened earlier on in your life. Okay. And it happened then and it and it modified your behavior. It modified the way you interacted with the environment and other people. Does that mean it has to keep doing that because you keep referencing that as a negative reinforcer? No. No. And so these sorts of conversations help with that. When you can you can address misery in very frank ways. And you, you, can, you can say that a million and one things contribute to our misery. And I think that actually gives humans a little too much credit. Uh, I think people like emotional, st emotional status has a, has a temporal sort of characteristic where we get emotional. We only stay emotional for a finite amount of time. And so whatever upset you now, upset you now. And then you can tell yourself the story about all these other things I contributed, but that distracts from whatever happened a few minutes ago that now contributed to your current emotional status. Right. So to that end, I think maybe, maybe people have two or three big scabs, like big ulcers. I like the ulcer, but they got two or three ulcers and you, know, you have silly statistics that say things like people think 20,000 thoughts a day or, or whatever. And I see as like, well, you, you think the same three thoughts 7,000 times each. And so it seems like you got 99 problems, but really you got two problems 50 times. Right. And so thinking of it and framing it that way also gives you a fighting chance to like, I feel bad now. That probably means something has affected me in the very recent past which gives me an opportunity to now audit who I interacted with, the environment I interacted with, the things I told myself, and now structure the environment so that in the future, I can, I can change a couple of these variables to see how it affects my emotional status after. So you can do it very frank, sort of, sort of scientific way, if you will, that if you have an emotional status now, that emotional status occurred because of something that happened now. <laughs> you can you can say that 30 years ago my mother yelled at me about these things and I feel pissed off about it now but really I feel pissed off about it now because I told myself about it now right <laughs> oh that. hopefully that sort of like you can give yourself a fighting chance I'll repeat it one more time for emphasis your emotional status now hap occurs because of something that just happened more or less now, again, you have, you know, behavioral chains where one thing leads to another, but basically you have, you have an, what some psychologists, I guess, would call an activating event or, or some trigger moment. I just call it an aversive stimulus or a frustrating stimulus or depressing. I just have, you know, a, a modifier of the term stimulus. I use that. You had something pretty obvious that happened that may have kind of led you to spiral, and did that happen 20 years ago? No, it probably happened 20 hours ago or 20 minutes ago. And so that gives you plenty of information to start auditing your situation. I love it, man. Um, buddy, I value you so much. and I value your time. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. You own a nutrition business. We talked nothing about nutrition, but I want to give you a nutrition business a plug because truthfully, everyone, the, the, as, as you alluded to briefly, the ability to change your body is often never a seldom reflection of you know, well, it's obviously a reflection of what's going in your mouth, but that's never a reflection of an inability to do it. It's often a behavior change. That's a prerequisite. So thank you for 
digging into behavior change with us. And uh, you do it so often on your Facebook group, on your podcast, and all your other social media channels. Uh, man, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'll, I'll take a hot date with Ben Pakulski any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. It's a pleasure. Um, can you tell our audience about Trevor Cash and Nutrition and where they can learn more about you? You can go to trevorcashynutrition.com and you can see some Instagram related things at, at, at Dr. Trevor Cashy. We also have a Facebook group called the best nutrition group ever. Which is true. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I, I post seldom on the Instagram page. However, messages get responded to. So keep that in mind. Uh, if you want to send a message or contact us in any way, we respond to all those things. And uh, if you want to talk about those things, great. We have a, a kickstart program that we, that we use to start integrating a lot of these principles of the theory of constraint, where I know you already know what to eat. I already know that you know how to walk around the block. We already know that you know how to do these things. And for whatever reason, trainers, nutrition, they just like to, they like to shove that stuff down your throat when you already know. And so we care more about, well, what keeps you from doing it in a way that you enjoy and care about? We assess those things so that all these other beneficial effects, the getting sexy, the thinking clearer, the having the, that happens as a side effect of changing these really maybe simple things. And so the Kickstarter programs helps you audit your environment and the people you interact with. And just like the stuff that we talked about today to, to make it so like all this other stuff starts happening on accident and you actually like to do it rather than trying to do these things to avoid all of that other stuff you hate. And we call that instead of getting away from bad stuff to go towards good stuff instead. So you can find me at Dr. Cashy or trevorcashynutrition.com. We respond to all the messages. Thank you so much. My brother, thank you. And we will definitely have you back soon to discuss many more of these amazing. Awesome. Awesome. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for joining me today. April, once again, is Nutrition Month here at the Muscle Intelligence Community. We're doing everything we can to bring in some of the world's best experts, some of the world's foremost thinking um, leaders, thought leaders, ultimately, people who are doing it their own way, as I say, people who... Uh, begin where everyone else ends. The people who are really in the trenches, take, taking the theory, taking the science and applying it and seeing where the rubber meets the road, seeing where it sticks, seeing where it breaks. Ultimately, application of science is really where we want to merge and, and kind of combine our wisdom. So we're so thankful for people like Dr. Kashi coming on who are ultimately uh, you know, at the highest level in the world when it comes to the science, and also still in the trenches, teaching, coaching, leading his community of amazing, amazing humans. So, and if you haven't already followed Dr. Cashy on social media, you can find him at Dr. Cashy. You can also check him out his podcast that was Coffee with Cashy. He's also got the best nutrition group ever, which I actually tend to agree with. He does these lives that are just amazingly informative and, and hilarious at the same time. And one last note, as you guys part today's podcast, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I would love it if you would head over and, and support our sponsor for today. And that's V-U-O-R-I.com slash muscle and uh, ultimately get hooked up with 20% off their incredibly high quality performance athleisure clothing, which to me means super high quality garments that actually last 
look awesome. It's a type of thing you could wear to the golf course. You can wear to a business meeting. You can wear to the gym. You can wear to yoga class. Very, very diverse. I honestly tend to wear them uh, to the podcast. Sometimes I'll wear them going out to dinner. Sometimes I'll even wear it if I'm going to go crush a big squat workout and it still looks great, feels great, performs really well. And ultimately I've had their garments for a long time. So thank you to Vori for being a sponsor of the podcast. And thank you to you for being here and listening to my conversation with Dr. Kashi. I hope you're having a truly amazing week live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And if you are not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you go ahead and do that now, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe to podcasts on Spotify, on Apple podcasts, even on Amazon or YouTube, or ultimately anywhere where amazing podcasts are listened to and downloaded today. And if you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. And if there's any specific conversations you'd like to hear or any specific topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please go ahead and mention that as well. Ladies and gents, thank you for being here. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.